Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. I think that we've had we've had these podcasts for the past months just to uh, reintroduce ourselves for new listeners, our new listening audience, to give some perspective of who we are, who we are where we come from, um, why we're here. Yeah, exactly. I am a former program director of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. That's where Julie and I met. Yes. And, or those years is where we met. And... Um, we have each done, and Julie will tell her background, crisis calls and during COVID compared notes so often thinking, let's share this information with the listening audience. So we've been lucky enough to start that off. Julie, talk about your background. So for those who haven't been listening or are just listening now, um, I am Julie. I am in law enforcement. I have 24 years. I helped create and implement the juvenile crisis intervention training program for a big urban department. Um, I also have a son who suffers from severe mental health issues. Specifically, he has been diagnosed and re-diagnosed over the years, but basically bipolar one um, and IED, which is intermittent explosive disorder and ADHD. And he is now an adult. So I can definitely relate to a lot of people out there. I'm both levels um, of dealing with the struggles of someone you love. Yeah, and same with me. That's another thing that brought Julie and I together. I also have a son who is uh, a young adult that has bipolar disorder, and I've had my own journey with my family on all of this. And so um, that's what makes us, that's what was the driving force as well, is just um, sharing all this so that people have another place to tune in and learn and um, hopefully get some information that they hadn't known before they listened to the podcast. I have gotten a lot of information I didn't I know. Me, know. Too. <laughs> me too. I'm learning right along the way. Sometimes we'll, we'll talk to each other saying we get lost in the, the um, intrigue of our guests and forget we're even doing the podcast. And, uh, you know, just listening, these are really interesting people we've had on that teach, uh, teach us some we thought we knew everything, not even close. Yeah, I feel like I don't know anything. <laughs> I, I was listening to Dr. Steve Arkin, and I just thought it was fascinating when he was talking about the perfectionism and, um, oh, TMS therapy, which is trans, I'm probably going to screw this up, but trans transcranial magnetic stimulation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was quite interesting to me. What about you? And same with me. I mean, uh, so many, but Dr. Our, one of our most recent podcasts, Dr. Patrick McGrath, we dropped part one, part two is coming up. He specializes in OCD, and I thought I knew what obsessive compulsive um, disorder, I thought I knew everything about that or the basics, and he, it was such an eye-opener listening to him. He really uh, taught me so many things that I never even would have put in that category, something like intrusive thoughts. Um, you know, he said there was a fine line between the intrusive thoughts and schizophrenia. Yeah, That's that just blew a, my mind It's just for something sure. that never even occurred to me, but he uh, had such interesting detail about OCD that um, made, it made you really think. I mean, there's, there's some... And there's so many people out there who are probably struggling with it who don't even recognize... The symptoms, because they've never heard that before, yeah. like us. So, so quite interesting. I hope people will, if they're listening now, will look back at some of our older episodes and really take a listen. Yeah, tune in. Tune in to learn. 
When I think about experts on schizophrenia, I couldn't think of any better guests than Krissa and her husband, Tom. Two parents have a f- who have fought so hard and advocated for their son to give him the most normal life possible. Krissa has been a voice for those afraid to speak, an advocate for those afraid to act. But most of all, she has been an amazing, remarkable mother whose love for her son could fill many, many rooms. I'm very excited to have her on today. And the most thing I'm excited about is that I get to call her my friend. Another great day of guests yes. on the line. I'm very excited, again, to introduce my friend, Krissa, and her husband, Tom. We've known each other for many years. I feel like Long time. <laughs> half yeah. my life. So welcome, Krissa and Tom. Thanks for being with us today. And ni- nice to meet you both. I'm Nancy. Nice to meet you, Krissa and Tom. Hi, Nancy. So, so Krissa, you can um, tell our listeners how we met. <laughs> Let's start there. How do how do I know? How do I know you? It's so funny. I always think about um, Carrie Fisher, who said that comedy is tragedy plus time, right? And um, so we met when our sons uh, were roommates, inpatient in a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> yes, we did. Well, officially were, met. Yeah, we officially met because they were teenagers. We had known each other, I guess. We had kind of peripherally known each other through um, an online support group with, then it was the Child Now Lesson Bipolar Foundation. Um, I know they've morphed into a couple different organizations since then. But then we met in person when the boys were roommates and patient as teenagers, um, which was um, probably not a great, you know, probably not a story you hear about how people meet their friends, but it was, a uh, it was good for us. Yeah, it was. I was, I was so grateful, um, to have you both in my life and, and to learn so much. I, I often talk about you and a couple of the other ladies and I always say how, how I'm, I'm trying to think of the good word, like, how amazing it was to have such support when I felt like my whole life had just blown up in front of me. Yeah. I, d- I didn't even know the first step. So meeting someone like you who had already started the advocating path um, was eye-opening, and, and you really pulled me up from a, a dark place. So well, I'm forever grateful think, for that. Well, we passed it on, right? I, somebody did it for me, and if I was there for you, great. And, you know, lots of people are... You've have you've been there for them as well. So we all we kind of pass it on. Full circle. It's definitely the the silver lining of these amazing struggles, the bonding you meet, the the people you meet, the bonding along the way. It's like you know, friendships really like no other. People that get it. I agree. In my introduction I was talking about um how I was thinking about an expert on schizophrenia, and I thought, hmm, who better to call than Chris and Tom? Because, <laughs> <laughs> because you guys have really been through it all. So to start out with, do you want to tell your story on how you met and fell in love <laughs> and decided to have children? Tom's here for color commentary. About okay, great. We love so, that. So, um, so Tom and I met in college when we were 18, um, hey, each other's got so we were 21, um, which was a long story. But um, so we started dating, right, I guess 21, 22. And we got married at 23, had our first kid. Uh, Alex, he's a grown-up with the kids of his own now. 
Um, and then um, I had we had some fertility issues, so we decided we wanted to become foster parents and adopt through the foster care system. And so Tim, uh, we've adopted two kids, Tim uh, and our daughter as well. She's a year younger than Tim. But Tim was a kid who had bio siblings that were already in the system, so he was going to be going into foster care for sure. And so we basically brought him home from the hospital the day after he was born to keep him from the foster care system. So, um, and he was a good kid, good baby. Um, but we started noticing things where he had started having language issues early on. He didn't have a lot of speech. And then he started having behavioral issues by the time he was in fourth or pre-K, I guess he was four years old. We said to his pre-K teacher, you know, we're concerned that there might be some issues going on with Tim. We're not sure. If you think there's something going on, would you call us? And she called us the end of the first day. Wow. So we went, okay, it's not us. And he went through a bunch of diagnoses because, you know, in kids that young, they never know what the hell it is. So um, they started with PDD-NOS, which is like our six least favorite letters in the English language. What Um, What does that stand for? It stands, for, it stands for pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, which is neuropsychologist speak for, I don't know what the hell's wrong with your kid, but there's something wrong with your kid. And how, how old was he when they came up with that diagnosis? He was four. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, by the time he was five, it was an emotional disorder, not otherwise specified. By the time he was eight, it was bipolar disorder, not otherwise specified. And then it was bipolar with psychotic features schizoaffective and now it's schizophrenia so i mean he he went through the whole gambit um by the time he was 11 is when he was diagnosed with schizophrenia yeah i like to call it the alphabet soup of diagnoses there yeah wow with i'm sure a lot of medications along the way oh my god yeah <laughs> that's the so tough many. part yeah so many yeah you know how it is and, and they layer them on and they take them away and some cause weight gain and some cause acne and some cause you know, um, he had terrible heartburn with one. Tartar dyskinesia. Tartar oh. dyskinesia, yeah. Where, Which you know, he still suffers from today. Yeah, where he's involuntary, you know, kicks. Um, uh, involuntary movement. Yeah, and uh, so it's all, you know, and then all the cognitive issues that go along with it, especially when you're, they say the younger you're diagnosed, the more cognitive issues you have. With schizophrenia, the younger, you know, prevalent. Um, and it's definitely true for Tim. He's lost like. 35, 38 IQ points since he was in grade school. So, oh my gosh. Um, which is okay. I mean, Tim's a, one of those weird anomaly guys where most of his like, most of his issues are dealing with language and perceiving language. So they they really can't tell what his intelligence is, but is he smart enough to, at this point in his life, you know, manage his own life pretty well. So mm-hmm. yeah, he lives in his own apartment these days and, and like I just took him today I was just got back from taking a grocery shopping which I do about once every other week and in, the min, in, in between times he goes out with friends and they shop and do all that stuff so he has a part time job and washes dishes in a restaurant and, yeah, it's fantastic uh, that he's independent so proud of him that's really amazing yeah, it's taken well you know 16 years later from his initial from his final you know schizophrenia diagnosis he's he's, uh, he's doing well but it took us a long oh man. It was hell getting there. So, so take us through a little bit of that path. Like, what made you decide to take him to a doctor and start medication? Oh boy, I remember <laughs> in Georgia, his doc, his he had a therapist because we had this emotional disorder NOS, right? EV NOS. 
this diagnosis and and was it Georgia where it started? started in Georgia, but then we moved to uh, San Diego. So we started in, in in Georgia, and they said there's issues here, but since you're moving, let's just pass it along to somebody. Yeah, else. that was fun. Oh. So we lived in San Diego yeah. for three years, and then I got I took a job in the in the Midwest, which is where Tom's from. So we moved to Chicago, and when he got to a therapist here after a year, she sat us down one day and said, Tim really needs to be in a psychiatric hospital, and uh, it's not going to be the only time in his life he needs to go there. And she'd never given us a diagnosis for wow. like, uh, why? Um, and where and are we like, at when you're talking right now? What, where are we at with his age, more or less? What year? He's, uh, he's almost 11. Or okay. He's, he's just turned 11, I guess. And um, we're like, okay, that makes very little sense to us. Um, but she, Basically, the thing I think that, that struck us, I think the hardest for both of us, is that she straight up said, he's hearing voices. Oh, and we didn't. We didn't, didn't know, know what that meant. Oh. We didn't know, and, and we didn't know what that meant. And um, but we didn't want to put him in a psychiatric hospital right away. And then he put his head through the wall. Remember? Yeah. He decided he he basically tried to split his head open to get the voices out. So um, we said, okay. Apparently, you need to be in a hospital. Did he tell yeah. you that? I mean, did he tell you he was here? Yeah. Okay. That's when he told us. So we put him in the hospital down there in Park Ridge. And uh, he uh, was there 45 days, and the psychiatrist on staff there was not parent-friendly. No, yeah, his bedside manner was not. (laughs) He wasn't that great. And he finally said to us, listen, your son has schizophrenia, and we're like, you're a quack, and we took him out and So, because, you know, you've never heard of it before. An 11-year-old with schizophrenia, you must be insane. So... We took him out AMA, and then less than a month later, he had to go back. Yeah, he went back. He tried to. He, th- he was trying to kill himself. Yeah. So at, at eleven, you know, you're 11 and this is eleven. Yeah. Wow. So when your eleven year old tries to put his open, head open and kill himself, you know, within th- two months or three months period, you finally bite the bullet. And that's when we started researching because we had no idea what that meant. And so yeah, and you're you're really on an island when you first get the diagnosis mm-hmm. because. You're not. It's it's not like someone's going to stop by with a casserole and say, hey, "How you guys yeah. doing?" The minute they hear mental illness, it's, oh, everybody, they, everybody avoids you. That yeah, <laughs> it's like you you tell them your kid had the plague. And at that exactly. age, yeah. at that yeah. age, it's you know parents aren't talking to each other about that stuff. You know, it's just no, you're isolated kids, with this. Yeah. They don't want your their kids to play with your kid because your kid, yeah, weird, right, right, or could be dangerous is what they think, right? Right. So he, he basically spent from 11 to 15, he was inpatient over 300 days oh, and he had like 20 some odd hospitalizations. And then at 15, we ended up putting him in residential treatment because he was still unstable. He was completely, fluidly psychotic and unstable from 11 until about 17. Yeah. And, and how did your other, I don't want to jump around so much, but how did the other yeah. siblings handle this? Uh, you know, the, he's, yeah. he's in the middle age wise, the daughter's older yeah. and... Uh, our, our, daughter's, our daughter's yeah. a year younger. Our, our our son is three and a half years older. So he kind of took the um, bailing out so I don't have to be at home and deal with this crap route. So he spent a lot of time at friends' houses. You know, by the time he's 11, he's, his brother's 11, he's in high school. So he spent as much time as possible at his friends' houses. Um, our daughter... Um, uh, 
watched, you know, what had been her playmate basically turn into someone she was afraid of, oh, uh, which was hard. We, we ended up ha- really having to have, we had locks on all of our bedroom doors, key locks. They were all keyed the same key. So, you know, Tom and I could get in every, the other kids' rooms. The only lock, their only room that didn't have a key lock was Tim. He barely had his doorknob. Yeah. But um, the other kids needed to feel secure enough that they could lock their door at night and their brother couldn't get in. Yeah. I mean, sadly, I, I remember those times. I remember us talking about it, Tim being hospitalized. And, and, and sadly, but good for me, was that you guys became kind of the experts on hospitalization. Because when I brought yeah. my son to the same hospital as your son, um, I think that was his second hospitalization. So he was still fairly young. He was, I think, 15, 16 there around, around that time. Sure. Yeah, they're close to the same age, right? Like 10 months apart or something. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and that was Tim's, like, ninth. <laughs> right. Ten. But you were, like, the so, experts that I was like, okay, what happens? Because every hospital is so different. And it's such a shock for parents to first have that, I can't believe this is this is our family and our child is with other people, you know, like hospitalized in a psych, psychiatric inpatient unit and... You don't you don't get to be with them that much. It's not like in a hospital when you go sit by the bedside of your child. It's you're, exactly. the, you're allowed there like these stringent hours, and exactly. you don't know what's I'm, going on. And you know it's very you're very much in the dark as traumatic. a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean you take an eleven year old. I mean that's elementary school, right? So <sighs> yeah, you know you take an eleven year old, you put them in a hospital, and they're in a locked ward, and you're only allowed to see them two hours at a time, three days a week. Yeah, so as parents. Very tough. I mean, and I will say this, uh, being in law enforcement, you know, my schedule is ever changing. And Chris and Tom absolutely stepped up and said, if you can't be there, we'll go hang out with with your son. Which is why I love him so much. The best kind of friends. You become family. Mm -hmm. We did. And, you know, occasionally, you know, Julie and I would meet and we'd have dinner first because, you know, and the reason is because you need to be able to have someone. And this is why I think, you know, a lot of our friends and are over the years have been we we're call ourselves the parents that are we're the crazy parents because <laughs> how can you talk you can't talk about this stuff to regular no. civilians man i mean they lose their crap i mean you know i i can't talk about the fact that you know my son took uh everything out of my wallet cut up my credit cards and my driver's license and then took a ball peen hammer to my refrigerator i mean everyone else thinks you're crazy mm-hmm. yeah so, I- but i can I, I, I feel, feel like, like, well, that's a bad day. Yeah, those, <laughs> those are the best, that's the best support you can get, the people that are around you that get it. I'm I'm for a former, uh, ma- well, former program director of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and also a parent of a son who's around the same age as, sounds like your son, who was diagnosed in high school, or, or no, I should say around 13, with major depression, anxiety, wow. and started we started seeking help then and he was first hospitalized when he was 15 and i can remember that um i just hadn't i had no i was in such shock he you know it was like overnight that he just turned into trying to hurt himself and uh he went to school having taken an overdose of benadryl and oh and which which of course he marched right into the guidance counselor's office to say this is what i just did and the guidance counselor completely almost passed out and uh took had the you know had him taken to a hospital but i just remember thinking sitting in that little room the social workers talking to him i wasn't even he was a kid i wasn't even allowed really in there and just sitting in this room with a box of tissues 
thinking, I who who do I even call with this? I mean, it's just so, you know, it's very it's very tough to talk to just anyone about this. And the NAMI the NAMI family that I have is what you're talking about. People that get yeah. it, people that have been there, they they turn out to be yes, like you guys, family, all of you. Well, and it's not even just the fact that you can't talk to strangers. I mean, let's talk about the way they treat our kids. I mean, we live in Wisconsin now. So this is where we live, you know, in the area where Tom grew up. So in Wisconsin, <laughs> I'm always sad to tell parents. And, you know, it's not much different in Illinois, you know, in Illinois or other states anyway. Um, my son ha- would have had the ability to say no to being hospitalized at the age of 13. Can you imagine? Right. My flirtly psychotic, Makes totally no suicidal, whacked out kid who could not say no to a vaccine, mind you, if I wanted to give him one. Uh, but he had the right to say no to an inpatient hospitalization, even if he was suicidal. That was just stupid. Yeah. Different laws for different states. Mm-hmm. And, and sadly, yeah, Illinois, it's different it's, in different ages. And Illinois is very young. I think it's 12. Is it twelve? I thought it was like fifteen, but I, I thought it was. I, I thought it was fifteen in Illinois. I thought it Wisconsin. Might, I right. thought was earlier. Was younger, but the whole yeah, thing. The whole thing. Most of the time makes no sense. I mean, it just it doesn't fit sense. the bill. But that's the law, you know. I mean, it's just these yeah. parents, so, parents that really need the power. So how yeah, did you? Well, and then, go ahead. I'm sorry, Krista. Go I, ahead. I was going to say, and then we went. You know, basically, you know, when Tim was in residential treatment for what four and a half years. Until he was 19, I guess, almost 20. And how did he, how did you get him into residential? What was the decision was, making on that? That was rough. Um, so I know it's morphed a little bit, the, the, what, the way the law is, but um, we lived in Illinois at the time. And Illinois at the time on the books had a law called the Individual Care Grant. So the individual, and it still exists in some form, it's not called that anymore, but the Individual Care Grant actually was a grant from the state of Illinois specifically for kids who had a disorder, a mental health disorder that included psychosis. And it would pay for either wraparound, intensive wraparound community-based services, if you could find them, (laughs) or inpatient, you know, or residential treatment. So Tim was in and out of hospital so much. um, It was recommended that we apply for the ICD grant. We applied for it. The first time we applied, we got denied. I think they denied everyone the first time. But um, this, I rarely take no for an answer. <laughs> so I found some folks who had done it successfully before, um, networked and found some folks, and they helped me fill out the second application, and it was approved in like three days. It was amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it pays for that regardless of parental income, because let's be honest, I mean, residential care, it, it does take, put them on SSI, and then SSI pays a portion of it. Um, but like residential care is like a hundred grand a year at least. Easily. At least. And, um, and uh, there was no way we were going to be able to ever get that for him. And we honestly, we didn't know if he was going to make it to 18 without that. Yeah. I mean, he, by the time he went there, I mean, he's, he's had three and a half, almost four suicide attempts basically, you know, before he was 20. So um, you know, there was, there was a, we spent a lot of, we spent most of his teenage years trying to keep him alive. Yeah. And, and did he go to, I, I'm, unless I missed what you were saying, was it one residential care place or did he bounce around and go to a few? He, he went to one that was really great, um, in Wisconsin and in, in Oconomowoc. It was really great until he was 18. Then he, they didn't have room for him in their 18 
plus program. So he ended up coming back to one in Illinois and he was there for about a year. Yeah. And then he was out of that one. And we had a long transition plan for him coming home. It started with, he comes home every weekend. Then maybe he, once a month, he comes home for five days. And then we kind of transitioned that back into him being home full time. And how did that Um, go? Was that a rocky road or was it a good plan? Did you feel like there were times you were scared for him to come home or that it was, oh, this is a good plan. You know, we're easing, we're mainstreaming him back into our house. No, it, it, it actually went better than we anticipated, to be honest with you, because yeah. he had learned quite a bit in residential. Mm-hmm. And I think we well, found the right meds, too. We found the right meds, too. And he was, he'd, made, he'd gotten stable about, you know, little, right before he turned 18, he really started to show some stability. And so he was 19 and a half. So he was about a year, 18, 20 months of him being really stable before he came home, um, which was good. I mean, it was easier, too, because, you know, we had to transition him back home to the point where our daughter was still living here. She was diagnosed with PTSD after he went into residential care. So is that from dealing with him? Yep. Yep. From him. Um, You know, she had her own issues. She was also in foster care. So she had her own issues to deal with and then her brother on top of it. So. Well, and then in the middle of somewhere here, she ended up having seizures and has. Oh, yeah. She ended up being diagnosed with epilepsy in the middle. So she was dealing with a lot. But um, so the part of the transition was also making her comfortable that he could come home. And that was probably the hardest part. Yeah, it was by far. And what did what did you do to make her comfortable? Um, a lot of therapy. Um, yeah. She had a lot of therapy. Um, we had. She was allowed um, certain leeway, like um, she was allowed to tell him no if she didn't want to spend time with him, and he had to be okay with that. And we had to sit down and have a conversation about it. And, you know, it was really hard. Tim was very trepidatious um, in dealing with her when he was first transitioning home because he knew that she had been deathly afraid of him. And, you know, he doesn't always remember all the things that happened when he was psychotic. Right. So, yeah. um, he, uh, but he feels very sheepish because he loves his sister very much, and um, they. He didn't. He didn't really want to know how to interact with her very well because he was afraid of making her afraid. So I think that was probably the hardest part. Yeah, that sounds yeah, like that sounds there very was, difficult. I mean, yeah. it sounds like a tough one, tough part yeah. of this. But um, you know, that was eight years ago and almost nine years ago, and. He's a. He had a couple bounce backs. He did some in, short inpatient stays in the first two years he was home, and he has been uh, hospital free for about seven years. So. Wow! Yay! Boy, yeah, you so guys are amazing. <laughs> I was knocking wow, on stuff yeah. too for you. Knocking on my head. Same mm-hmm. thing. Um, okay, so the million dollar question: Your marriage. How many years have you two been married? It seems like about a hundred. Thirty-one. Thirty-one. Okay, so so how you know I, I run Nami support groups with stories that are somewhat similar, even though this is quite the journey you're describing. But how how did you keep your marriage together? I mean, it, how did you? Didn't you find that this was amazingly trying on your marriage or do you have some sort of magical answer that, you, Oh no, we were in sync the whole time or. Well, we, you know, when we first had kids, well, when we first had kids before, forget about kids. When we first had kids, we decided that we were, 
always going to have a united front in front of the kids. So even if we disagreed on like discipline or something the kids are allowed to do, our disagreements were in private behind closed doors and to the outside world, to the kids, we were always in sync. Mm -hmm. And I think when we, when we, when Tim started to have issues, I mean, there was a period of time, several, several years there before he went, you know, between 11 and 15, where either Tim, either Tom or I were with Tim 24 hours a day. Wow. So we yeah. basically. Oh, and I should interject. I was a stay-at-home parent. Yeah. So okay. Tom actually quit his job when we first realized there were issues with Tim when he was, when Tim was very young and he became a stay-at-home dad. So, but we sat down and we said, okay, we're going to split this up. You know, Chris, Chris is going to deal with doctors and bureaucracy and Tom is going to deal with school and, and. Um, the everyday stuff. Everyday stuff. That was one thing. And then there was that one point in our lives where, like I said, we were with him 24 hours a day. We, I mean, we basically lived like roommates. It was like, hi, nice to see you. Bye, got to go. And we just, we sat down and said, okay, this is our life right now. Mm-hmm. And um, we're not saying it's not stressful. I mean, you know, when Tim went into residential treatment, we thought, you know, oh, great, the stress will be off this. But what happened was everybody in the family fell apart. Like, oh, interesting. Or drinking yeah. too much, or eating too much, or crying too much, or PTSD, or whatever. I mean, everybody finally was able to exhale, and then all the stress just. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. So, but we acknowledged it, and then we all we did the work together. You know, we decided that the only way we were going to keep our family and our kids sane and our kids alive was if we were a united front against this. And there are a lot. We still do. Yeah. There's a lot of times we haven't agreed, but we always. We always know that the reasons we disagree aren't because we think the other person's wrong. We just we just have different opinions, and mm-hmm. um, I think that's like I said, we we kind of decided that we do all of our debate behind closed doors, and that's why the outside world pretty much sees us as the United Front. <laughs> yeah, you just sound so grounded, um, you know, in such a tough journey to say the least. Just it just sounds like really smart way that you went about this and also it sounds like um i mean everybody has their expectations of what they think their family will you know all will get married like you said you guys you two got married so young and um you know you're gonna have kids and you look at your life ahead and it turns out to a screeching halt to be so different for some reason it just sounds like you were not shaken by that lack of you know coming through on expectations of just kids and building a life and you know it just seems like you just really had it together have it together to have gone through it like that you know it's easy it's easy to look like that on the outside but i think there's internally you know we had to we we went through it took us a lot that's for sure i'll never forget the first that first hospitalization when you had to take 10 to the hospital he's 11 and you know you go through hours and hours of intake and paperwork and your kid gets your 11 year old gets strip searched and Mm-hmm. You know, all with kinds a, of stuff. somebody standing watching them at, in the emergency yeah. room. Yeah, and all that, and and um, or the time we were in the emergency room, and he wouldn't let any us come near him. He kept screaming to the doctors and nurses in the emergency room that we were trying to kill him and poison him or whatever. And but you know, we that first hospitalization, we come home, and the two of us just sat down on the couch and cried because like, and we were up. We probably didn't sleep for like three days. The first, yeah. you know, the first time. And that's the hardest thing. And we always try and tell folks that are starting this journey. It's 
you feel like a failure when you have to put your kid into a locked ward. Well yes. said. Yes. Well said. And you don't feel like a failure when your kid's in the hospital, like you said earlier, and you get to sit next to their bedside and hold their hand and talk to their doctors. And I mean, you can't even talk to a psychiatric doctor when your kid's in the hospital unless you schedule an appointment by phone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're sitting at home basically where you're not even allowed to see your kid every day. And you're like, well, our kid's a crackpot. We failed. (laughs) And um, we just cried because we couldn't believe we had to turn our 11-year-old over. And, you know, it compounded, too, because I'll never forget, he came out of that first hospitalization. We went back to see a psychiatrist. And he told us that probably the best thing for us to do was to relinquish our parental rights to the state and turn him over because we'd never be able to get him to care he needed. Yeah, that happens a lot. <sighs> yeah, it happens a ton. And I looked right at him and I told him there was absolutely no way I was giving up my kid. I mean, yeah, so after that, there was a lot of results on our part there, of what we were going to accomplish. Yeah, because so. we were, and that's the thing too. I mean, we're both pretty, uh, uh, Tom's quieter about it than I am probably, but we're both pretty pigheaded. So when you tell us something can't, can't be done, we're going to pretty much do everything we L- can to prove you. Lucky Tim. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, I think that it's, then you fast forward, he's living on his own. Um, boy, you are, you really have, you're a success story to your family with this. It really is uh, absolutely amazing. That's some and, tough stuff to go through. Yeah, and he's a nice man. I mean, he's Tim's a really nice young man. He he's got lots it. of friends. Tom Carlton, the little town he lives in, Sister Bay. Tom says he's pretty much just the unofficial mayor of Sister Bay. He knows everyone. <laughs> I, I know. I know Sister Bay. Yeah. It's really they, I can just picture he he must make a presence. <laughs> I believe that. He an, yeah, he has an electric bike. He rides all over town in the summer. Oh, waves nice! It. Oh, I love it. Uh, he everyone knows him and he works at the you know one of the big restaurants in town and he's just i mean the funny thing we think is uh, of everyone you know of our family of five three kids and the two of us the most extroverted outgoing person in the family is the one who happens to be also psychotic yeah so um you know he's just uh he everyone he meets he likes right off the bat until you prove him wrong and he is uh, generally a very happy person, yeah. mm-hmm. helpful person. I mean, there's a whole other community over here on the other side of the peninsula that's adopted him and mm. made him an unofficial member of their community because he goes over in the summer and there's a lot of older people there and they're like, hey, can I cut your lawn? Can I stack your firewood? Can I, you know, and he sounds like a just, charmer. He is. He's a total, he's an absolute charmer. I mean, this is the kind of kid where if he hadn't dropped all these IQ points and had this rough part in his life, he probably would have been either the world's greatest businessman or con man, one or the other. But, <laughs> Let's hope um, the latter. Yeah, I mean, he's just, he really is a charmer. Everyone who meets him just thinks he's the greatest. So, I have to concur with everything they've said. I've met, <laughs> I've met Tim on several occasions. We have texted in the past, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and I had the fortunate to spend time with him. He helped in our CIT program. Oh, um, yeah. Krissa and Tom both helped me teach and their son. So you want to talk a little bit about that, your experience sure. with CIT? We don't have to name the department directly. but Why don't you also tell your listening audience what CIT is, a little just so they know. Crisis intervention oh, training. Crisis, but Crisis intervention training, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Tom and Tim did a lot of those with uh, different departments. Yeah, and it was it was basically a training for police officers to understand what it's like when you're dealing with someone with mental illness. 
um, and how different it is than from what I got from being in these meetings, but how different it, ha- it, it tends to be than a regular call that they would get. Yeah. Uh, there are certain things that, I mean, it, I guess what we always, kind of, I guess the kind of thing that I always come back to is that you're not going to compete with the voices of my son's head. And as a police officer, that's got to be frustrating. Um, and there are ways to deal with that, but you need to be, you have, you have to learn those. They don't, they don't actually come naturally. So, so no. the CIT training was a fantastic way for these officers to really get an understanding of what it's like, kind of from the mental illness side, before they have to walk into a crisis. Yeah. It was interesting, too, how to listen. I remember, you know, listening to some of them um, and having Tim tell an officer or, you know, a group of people, when you come to a call, you always try to make yourself bigger, which makes sense. You know, Tim said this. Tim said this. Tim said this. You try to make yourself bigger. But to me, when I'm having an issue or I'm seeing things or hearing things, I already think you're bigger than you really are. So if you can make yourself smaller, it makes me less afraid. And I had a someone walk up to me after that session and go, I never thought about it like that. <laughs> yeah, wow. And, um, it's, and, and not only that, but they would come up to us after the sessions and say, yeah, you know, my, my mother-in-law has depression or my sister has bipolar disorder or whatever. And it's, kind of interesting to hear it i never really thought about it from her side maybe i should talk to my sister or talk to my mother-in-law or, um which was also really cool because i don't know i don't think i've met anybody whose family doesn't have some kind of mental health issue going on in it somewhere i agree i agree so when you and i think that's one of the reasons you know i started blogging about him when he right before he went into residential treatment and I never blogged about him without him knowing that I was blogging about him. In fact, he loves it. Um, he thinks it's great because he likes to help other people. Um, but one of the reasons we decided right off the bat that we're going to use our real names is because when you, well, I'm not ashamed of who Tim is and he's not ashamed of who he is. Yeah. Um, we talk about it a lot because it's not being talked about and it needs to be because it, it is be. more prevalent than, than people think. So yes. I don't, you know, you know, I'll look at somebody, and you just met somebody, you know, and a conversation came up with one of my customers, and I, and something came up where he said, well, Tim seems a little different. I said, yeah, he's got schizophrenia. And I'm just like that about, yeah. I don't I don't <laughs> sugarcoat it. I said, you know, he's done a lot of work, and, and he, you know, he's done a lot of things to make himself not better, but feel more like part of the community and to take care of, the, you know, and to be able to take care of himself. And he's done a lot of work to get there. So I'm really proud of him for that reason. And I don't, I talk about schizophrenia as we should about, you know, if you have diabetes or in my case, a liver transplant, yeah. you know, <laughs> I talk about these things because they need to be talked about. Mm-hmm. It's such a help to other people. We when, have to normalize the conversation. The, yeah. When the stigmas, yeah. when the stigmas out, it really helps. It takes a long well, time to get there. And we stigmatize ourselves almost as badly as, the outside world stigmatizes us, right? So, you're right. I mean, about that, that. Was the, that was the thing, you know, like I said, we kind of fell apart and went into residential treatment. Well, you know, one of the things we talked about is you know, our doctor suggested to us, you know, maybe you should go into therapy. And Tom and I look at each other like, we don't need therapy. And we're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Because you're like, if I go into therapy, there's something wrong with me. Well, Doy, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. I mean, uh, you need to, <laughs> you need to go work on your stuff. 
So, oh, Julie, I want to tell you too. You're going to love this. Uh-uh. Um, so Tim has great friends up here that he hangs out with, and they go to the Y together, and they do activities together. And his best friend that he hangs out with more than anybody else, they do all kinds of stuff together, um, is a retired uh, uh, homicide detective from Madison. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so his... Um, You know, I'll tell you the one thing, and it's the people you hang out with, too. I'll tell you the one thing that a lot of people, you know, with schizophrenia in particular, have a concern and, you know, worry about the police. I never had to worry about that because Tim had Julie. So he knew knew what a police officer looked like. He knew what a police officer sounded like. You know, Julie had this thing. Whenever Tim would go down in the city, Julie's like, well, just write my badge number and my cell phone number, my name on his arm in a Sharpie. And if there's a problem, they'll just call me. (laughs) So, um, So he always felt like, you know, whenever a police officer, and he did get pulled over occasionally walking down the street when he was, well, one time he was walking down the street in the middle of a snowstorm and nothing but his underwear and socks. But, you know, of course the cop is going to pull you over, but he doesn't run or do anything weird that you think about. He immediately stops, you know, puts his hands on the hood of the car and says, hello, officer, because he knows Julie and Julie Cole taught him how to deal with it. So it, it, it's been super helpful that, um, and I think that's one one reason why I think um, well, first of all, I don't think police officers should ever have to be called to a mental health crisis, but that's a whole other show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the second, the second thing is, I think it's important for police officers to see people in mental health crisis when they're not necessarily the one responding to the call, or at least to hear about it, yes. because it really humanized. We had a couple of great. I mean, you were a great one. We had a sheriff's deputy who would call. He'd hear calls at our house where we were trying to get Tim into an ambulance and things were going terribly wrong. He would come on his days off when he heard it because um, he knew Tim and he knew how to calm him down and how to get him into an ambulance and how to deal with us and what was going on. So if you can find those people or there's, if the police officers are more and more open to like learning about this and seeing what it really looks like, I think it would help um, with a, in a lot of places where, you know, it's got to be part of the CIT training, not just to sit in the room, but like, Tom and Tim did and Julie did and you know we even did with social workers at one point listen to these people that have mental health issues and, and hear about what it sounds like when they're in crisis or see a video of what it looks like when they're in crisis. Yeah. The the engagement is what really changes the game especially from a police perspective because you're you're looking at and now I'm a little older but I, I'm thinking back to when I was in my young 20s right all we had our perception of people with mental illness were the people in straight jackets or the people, you know, um, hurting other people. Um, it gives, there was such a bad stigma out there that I don't think you realize how normal it looks. Yeah. How normal it can look. Or even, you know, even the fact that, you know, we even say too, I mean, honestly, we are one car accident potentially well i think we're better off now but there was a point where we're like one car accident away from tim being on being living on the street and that being if tom and i were in a car accident and he wasn't we weren't there for him he wouldn't at at that point in his life he wouldn't have known what to do he wouldn't have had anything set up for him we were his support system so and a lot of we were and you can't live forever like that so we made a lot of changes and sacrifices in our lives i mean one of the reasons we moved up here is you know a 500 people in town really hard to get in trouble b uh tom went to high school with like every bartender in town so tim can get like <laughs> maybe, maybe a beer but that's it because no one will serve him um you know c we have relatives here friends here family here he really can't go anywhere um but also 
he's got, um, you know, has subsidized housing here that he can afford on his SSI. And he's got a part-time job that's sheltered. So if Tim has a bad day and doesn't show up to work, it's no big deal because, you know, the lady who owns the restaurant is the sister-in-law of Tom's best friend from high school. And, um, you know, the doctors are here and he likes the weather here. And he's got, he's set up now to the point we think where if something was to happen to us, if that car accident was to happen, Tim's, or, you know, your liver fails. Oh, Tim's life goes on. Yeah. Tim's life goes on. It and takes a village. It does take a village. And it's so hard. And I don't know. We've, Like I said, we've made some sacrifices and given up things. You know, we gave up. I gave up a very lucrative job. And we gave up a really, you know, our big house in the, you know, in the burbs. And um, to move to a small town where I work from home. And Tom has a small business that you know, some years makes money and some years doesn't. And, but that's okay. I mean, because what we had to decide what was most important for us was that, um, well, first of all, Tim was taken care of because if Tim was taken care of, that also means that our older, our son, our older son and our daughter don't have to worry about taking care of Tim when we're gone. I was going to ask that. I was going to mention that, that like the other yeah, siblings can really good. feel like, uh, like that's the case. And you simplified so yeah. this move was really because of Tim when you moved from, yeah. and boy, 100%. it simplified everything, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, and the good news is that the, everybody followed us, so the yeah. the rest of our kids live up here now. And, oh, nice. Mm. Um, which is great. I got to come home, too. I mean, that's yeah. now. And it, it doesn't <laughs> help that it's one of the most beautiful places on the earth. So It is a really beautiful it is. place. Yeah. It's a beautiful place. It's, you're lucky to be up there all all year round, all of the seasons. Yeah, yeah, we are. But it takes a lot of planning, and I understand it's not not everybody can make the choices to have the opportunity to make the choices we made, or um, you know, what the sacrifice for us may be not you know maybe impossible for somebody else. And we're just really lucky it, it has turned out this way. Yeah. What are your suggestions for other parents who, on, on, on both spectrums, you know, someone just starting out when their child is young and maybe someone who is dealing with someone into adulthood, not just parents, but caregivers. Um, yeah. what, are, what are your suggestions? How can, how can they help their loved one? What should they do? Have um, fun. I know. The first thing, the first thing I would say is network, um, yeah. find people, that are going through the same things you are. And I think there's more resources today with podcasts like this and with what, well, you know, obviously NAMI, you know, NAMI, NAMI um, support groups are great. Yeah. Hospital support groups are great. Online. Um, you know, there's tons of online, go on Facebook and just search. I mean, there's a ton of online support groups. Um, yes, I agree. I think support groups are the best medicine. I mean, they, especially now, now you don't even have to leave your house, but, mm -hmm. uh, no. the best medicine, they just, uh, yeah, find some that. people that they know what you're going through. The other one is, and this is the hardest one, I think, is that you need to literally, and I don't mean this facetiously, you really need to stand and look in the mirror every day and realize that and tell yourself it's not your fault. Because nothing, you know, we, Great you know, point. Tim's adopted. So we got the, we, we got the reprieve. In fact, we had people say to us, well, if he's, you know, got a mental illness, why don't you just give him back? And I'm like, he's not a token. He's not a token. <laughs> oh, not an Amazon package. Yeah, can't return it because it's effective. But, I mean, so we didn't necessarily have some of the stigma that some parents go through because he wasn't a biological kid. 
Um, and it's very obvious he's not a biological kid. Oh, by the way, because we're white people and Tim's African American. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's super obvious he's not our bio kid. Um, but it's not your fault. Even if it's, you know, even if you've got mental health issues in the family, like I said, whose family doesn't? Um, it's not your fault. What you're do, going do you so, think? Do you think when you when you when you you know had to come to that conclusion, look in the mirror and be able to say it's not our fault. Do you think that therapy for both of you helped you come to that, come to that conclusion or come to at least that point that, I mean, so often we say, we say that when people feel like they have a lack of control of, which we have so much lack of control of what's going on with all this, at least if you get help yourselves, you can strengthen and be able to look in the mirror and say that. Do you feel that Um, helped? Yeah, therapy for me really, it didn't, I don't know, it never took, maybe I didn't find the right person to deal with to, to, mm-hmm. to help with that. Tough for me. Um, it helped with her. Um, I think it's just yeah, kind of a, for me, my point would be is that never take no. Never take no for the mm-hmm. ultimate answer. I mean, between Krista and I, because we divided and Krista did medications and doctors and all that kind of stuff, I did school. Um, we we were a force to be reckoned with. In fact, the head mm-hmm. of the school yeah. would see me coming down a hallway, and she would dive into someone's office. <laughs> <That's hilarious. laughs> Good for yeah. you. Well, and then we started helping other parents in the district too, so she really couldn't stand it. Yeah. But um, but you you got to remember, you're the only person talking at times. At least for us, for Tim, we were the only person in the room that was talking about his best interest. Yeah, as far as we were concerned, advocate for him. and our advocating for him was, you know, we were the only ones doing it. You yeah, have to be their voice. We yeah. have to, and, it, and that even includes, you know, doctors. You know, we had some psychiatrists who were total, like that first one who told us to give him up. Well, that was the last appointment we ever had with him. I mean, I'm not going to put up with the doctor who's not going to be my partner. I mean, we got lucky in the fact that yeah. I think he's retired now, but um, the doctor we had uh, eventually was the one that. Um, after Tim's, I guess it was Tim's second hospitalization, we found him. And then he was the one that helped us with the ICG grant to get him into residential treatment and always kept up with us from day one. And I mean, this is the same doctor who said to me in one breath, Hey, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what I want to do about X or Y or this medication. Would you go back to your mom group there and ask them about this and see what they, what, what their experiences were? Cause he knew he didn't know everything about early onset schizophrenia. And, you know, this is the guy who was not afraid to say to me, I've never seen a case this severe, this young. And I'm like, thanks for that. But I mean, he was, yeah. he was, he was at least willing to say, I don't know everything and do the research and, and partner with us. Right. To, that's to rare. That's him. rare. That's a, that's a really nice. We had to find him. We had yeah, to find him. And people will say, oh, you're doctor shopping. No, I'm not doctor shopping. I'm looking for someone who wants to help me treat my son. I'm not looking for someone who's going to treat and me. And also like someone gonna... who will listen to you. Talk yeah. about the core of your son. You know your son, and he's sick, and you need help, but you know who he is. Well, and now, and then we ended up, you know, we have um, what's called plenary guardianship. So we have both guardianship of the person and the state, whatever state there is, um, of Tim now that he's an adult, um, which was pretty easy to get, obviously, with his history. But even now, we found the right doctors that, you know, Tim does not like to go to a doctor's department without us because... Again, he has problems reading people's language and facial expressions and things like that. And he's not always sure if what he's hearing is actually what's being said. So he likes us to go with him. And the doctors are totally cool with that. 
um, which is good. And they're cool with that. Even if, you know, before they even, they're one years now, before I even gave her guardianship papers, she's like, you're coming fine. Cool. Whatever. And whatever made him comfortable, she was happy with. Yeah. I think, uh, parents and caregivers really need to look for doctors who, who do that. Yeah. It's out there. You just have to, you have to find them. And sometimes you have to drive a little further, but it is worth its weight in gold. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, Krista and Tom, we cannot thank you enough for your expertise, as always. Um, and hopefully we'll have you on again. Yeah, you two are so so to be admired. I mean, what an example. I, I can't get over your journey. I think it's just remarkable. And Tim just living as he is independently. Uh, wow, that's an incredible family system you have. It's really impressive. I hope we've given a lot of people this hope. Was, this was very uplifting, so thank you. I hope so. It, it, hopefully you get to a point in your with your loved one that's you know going through this that you're able to get to a point where things start to turn a little bit and every little success becomes a big success. Because yeah. that's what we kind of had to live on with okay. him for a very long time. I mean, again, just, you know, we know what it's like to worry about whether or not your kid's going to live basically through the day or through the week or through the month or through the year. So to be on the other side of it, um, you know, for the most part, we always still kind of wait for the other shoe to drop occasionally, but, um, but to be mostly on the other side of it is not a place we thought we would ever be at. So we understand people that are still in the middle. Thank you so much for sharing. This was really, thank you guys. This is really a special visit, so thank you. Well, we'll do anything for you, Julie, even though you're a <laughs> Thanks. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.